Some of the greatest stories of faith come from God's chosen people in the Old Testament. What can we learn from these men and women who were earnestly seeking God? Walk with us as we capture snapshots of faith from the great cloud of witnesses and the lessons we can learn from them today. In many ways, the book of Esther is one of the most unusual books in the entire Bible. One reason for that claim and that statement is that it's the only book in the Bible where the name of God is not even mentioned, not once. It's not a kind of book that you hear preached on a lot in Christian churches. But for Jews today, particularly after the last hundred years, it's a book that they have focused on deeply through the Holocaust, through wars, uh, as we see even today, through racism that we see even in our own country against Jews today. This has become a book that is incredibly significant, incredibly important, particularly for the Jewish people. They have a, a religious holiday called Purim, and Purim is a day in which they remember the story of Esther. And they are encouraged in the story of Esther by this great reality. And when I say it, you'll understand why it's so significant, particularly in the last hundred years. What we see in this book is that God is faithful to the promise that he has made to Abraham, and he will not allow his people, the Jews, the promise that he made to the Jews through Abraham, he will not allow the nation to be destroyed. He will not allow them to be annihilated. How many times throughout history have we seen the nation, the people, the Jews, at the doorstep of, of extinction? And so this morning, we're gonna look together at the story of Esther, we're gonna focus as a snapshot, we're gonna focus on chapter four. But before we get to chapter four, what I wanna do is I wanna kinda of share with you the story. Many of you may not be familiar with the story of Esther, so I wanna just give you a background to it, then I'm gonna read chapter four, and then we're gonna look at four things that should matter to each and every one of us today as we learn from the story of Esther. Well, the year is about 482 BC. And what has happened to lead to this moment is about a little more than 100 years before, the temple of the Lord was utterly destroyed. For many, many years, God had sent prophets to the people to warn them that if they did not repent, if they did not change their ways, if they did not embrace the Lord our God, that he would bring discipline upon them in order to get their attention, in order to draw them back to himself. Well, the people ignored the prophets of God. There were false prophets in the land that said, no, 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 God is pleased with you. And there are people today who will tell us how happy God is with us, even though we're, we are a culture that is living further and further away from the ways of God. And so God brings his discipline Almost the entire nation is driven from the land of Judah. 
The best and the brightest are taken to Babylon because it was the Babylonians who, who God used as an instrument of his judgment, of his discipline coming upon the people of God. Most of them, the, the best and the brightest were taken to, um, to Babylon. And then the remainder, most of the, who was left went to Egypt. Some settled into the foreign nations surrounding them. And by and large, the land was empty. Now, the people of God lived in this now as exiles in the land of Babylon. During that little over 100 years, Persia and King Xerxes came and destroyed the Babylonians. And now the Jews are servants of King Xerxes. He's a powerful king. He's also a very evil king. He has a, he has what, what we would call today a world's fair for six months in the land. And during this world's fair, he ordered his queen, Queen Vashti, to come out and basically she was nothing more than eye candy on his arm. And she refused. Well, you don't refuse the king. And she was banished. She was sent away. Which began a year-long beauty contest in the land to find the next queen for King Xerxes. Well, in Persia, there were Jews, included many, many Jews. Uh, some had already been sent and left to go back to Judah to begin to rebuild Jerusalem. But there were many Jews that were left there in Persia. And there were two in particular that the book of Esther talks about. One was a man named Mordecai. And he had a niece that he raised. She had been an orphan. And Mordecai raised her, and her name was Esther. And Mordecai encouraged Esther to try out for this beauty contest to become the queen of Persia. Esther does it. They send her to a beauty school, along with all the other women that had stepped forward. And they, after a year of this beauty contest... Esther is chosen to be the queen. Now, Mordecai had been very specific with, with Esther. He told Esther, don't let anyone know that you're a Jew. Don't let anyone know your nationality. Not even the king, the husband of Esther, knew that she was Jewish. And so we read chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to be reading from Esther chapter 4. And as I read this, you'll see on the screen, you'll see Esther standing before the king. We read this. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, now what had been done was this. There was a, uh, the king had seven people, only seven people, his officials, who could come before him without being summoned. Not even Esther could come into the presence of the king, her husband, without him first summoning her, having her, calling her to himself. But these seven officials, they could come into the presence of the king without being asked. And one of them was a man named Haman. Haman hated Mordecai. He hated Mordecai, and he hated the Jews. And so he talked the king and convinced the king that what was best was for the king to issue an edict. And in this edict, all the Jews in the entire 
empire would be annihilated, would be put to death, would be put to the sword. And so Mordecai is mortified. I am a professional, do not try that at home. And so Mordecai hears about this. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly, crying loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. And every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes." When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Haddock, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to bring out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Haddock went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction, for the annihilation of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of, for the edict, for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, the capital of Persia, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him, with the king, for all her people. Haddock went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman to approach the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has, what, has but one law that they be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. But for 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So it had been 30 days since she had been summoned. And she's saying, this is ridiculous, I can't do that. I'll be put to death. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but, you, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Wow. What would you do? What would you do if you were in this situation? How would you respond if you were Esther? Your life is on the line. Now, she knows that the king doesn't know that she's a Jew. But Mordecai tells her, you too will be swept up by this edict. 
And so Esther's in a precarious position. She is, hears the words of Mordecai and understands that she could be the only hope that the Jewish people living in Persia that they have. What will she do? Well, there are four things that I want you to see as we take chapter four and we look at it from the context of our own lives. What is it that God is saying to us today? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me as we live in this area of the world in 2023? Well, here's the first thing that I want you to see this morning. This is very significant to me. God doesn't just lead by the burning bush, but by orchestrating everyday circumstances in our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I've wanted to hear God's will and his direction for my life. And I didn't want to just hear it. I wanted it to be something miraculous. Like he would cause it to be said in the heavens, on the sky, and I would look up in the sky and it would say, Don, I want you to do this. Or God would, would come to me in a burning bush that wasn't consumed, and God would speak to me, and he would make it clear what he wants me to do. In fact, in my experience in working with people, most of us are like that. We want God to lead us and guide us through the miraculous. We want God to come to us in a way that there's no question about what he is wanting us to do. We read in verse 14, which is um, probably the most significant, most quoted verse in the entire book of Esther. And we read these words of Mordecai. He says to Esther, as she's afraid to go before the king, he says to her, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place but you and your father's people will perish. And who knows, and who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther, who knows, but that God brought you to this position for this very purpose in this very time. Esther, who knows, but that God hasn't used and managed all the circumstances of your life to bring you to this point to bring you to this place for this very purpose. A couple things I want you to see. First of all, I want you to see the faith that Mordecai has in the promises that God has made. And friends, I want to say to you, we need to know the promises of God because if we hold on to the promises of God, they become like an anchor, as it says in Hebrews, they become like an anchor for our soul, keeping us firm and secure. And so Mordecai says, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will come from another place, from another source. In other words, Esther, God will be faithful to the promise that he made to Abraham, and we will not be annihilated. We will not be destroyed. He has confidence in the promise that God has made. But he says to Esther, but Esther, who knows but that God has put you in this place as queen of Persia for such a moment as this. This is something 
in theological terms that we call the providence of God. It's the providence of God. It's the belief, number one, in the sovereignty of God, that God stands over all of history, that God stands over all the events of our lives, that God is in charge, that God is in control. And the providence of God literally means this. God in some invisible and inscrutable way governs all of his creatures, all that he has created, including you and me. Our actions and our circumstances, now hear this, through the normal and everyday course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. There's a couple of things that I want you to think about, the, about this point. And the first is this. What if, what if God has placed you in the circumstances that you are in today, in your marriage, in your home, in your parenting, in your job, in the place that you live? Who knows but that God has not placed you in that place for such a time as this, that in those normal circumstances of your day-to-day life, in your school, in the circumstances of what's happening to you right now, who knows but that God isn't doing something miraculous through the everyday circumstances of your life. You say, but I, don't, I hate my job. My marriage is struggling. Who knows but that God hasn't placed you where you are today for such a time as this to do something extraordinary. Nothing extraordinary about your circumstances, but there's an extraordinary God who has orchestrated those circumstances of your life. I do a lot of thinking about this. So one of the things that I try to do is I try to to look at my life, and I do this every night, and I say, Lord, what is it that you're wanting to say to me about your purpose and your design in the circumstances that I'm in today? What did I miss today in my life that you orchestrated? You see, I don't see chance meetings, I don't see chance experiences, I think God's behind it all. And so I try to take advantage of those experiences because I believe God's behind it. I don't believe it's an accident that I live where I live. I believe that God is calling us to reach our neighbors. My wife, um, Beth, is, uh, I remember, I'll never forget this, it was such a great example for me uh, we do have done a lot of flying over the years, and uh, when I've flown to different places for different responsibilities, I, I get in my seat and I and I don't bother me. It's like a big sign that says, "Don't talk to me, don't bother me." And many years ago, Beth was sharing with me she flew from Orange County to Seattle. Do you remember this? No. Nope. Well, it really changed me. Um, <laughs> And sitting next to her was a woman that was really hurting. 
In fact, I think she was going to a funeral in Seattle. And Beth just looked at that as an opportunity and spent the time ministering, sharing Jesus with this woman and praying for her. You see, there are no chance God orchestrates things. Who knows but that God hasn't placed you in the very place you are for such a time as this. How could that make your purpose at work, at school, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your home, how could it make all of that different? I love what the book of Acts says about King, uh, King David. King David served the Lord in his generation and died. That's what I want on my tombstone. But I don't want David's name, I want my name. I served the Lord in my generation and died. See, I can't serve in any other generation. I don't live in that generation. I live in this generation. And God has point placed me here for a reason, for a purpose. He has called me to this time to live in this time for a reason and a purpose. And the same is true for you. A second thing that I want you to see in this is that there's no such thing as luck or fate. Now, that might be news to you because we hear this all the time. Oh, fate brought us together. Oh, it was fate that we met, right? When you meet Mr. Wright or, um, or, um, or Miss Wright, that's often what we say. Fate brought us together. It was luck. No, it was the hand of God. God, we believe in the providence of God that he orchestrates. There's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as fate. And I was just thinking just a few moments before I came up, a story about a woman that um, I really had deep respect for, and she's about, she's like a grandmother. And I remember when her husband died, and I asked her, I said, how are you doing? And she says, you know, I'm grieving deeply, but I also have a sense of expectation. God is behind this. What does he want for my life now? How can I glorify God in my new circumstance. Here's a second thing that I want you to see, and that is, this was really significant to me too. God doesn't want the tearing of our clothes. He wants the tearing of our heart. Listen to what we read. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, Haman, and, and encouraging uh, the king to pronounce this edict for the termination of the Jews, he says, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. Now, this was something that people in that part of the world did all the time. This is the way they grieved. This is the way that often, for the Jews, this is the way they responded to their sin. They tore their clothing. Great to be a tailor back then. Because they would tear their clothing and this was a sign, not just for Jews, but all over the world, in that part of the world at the time, they would rend their clothing, they would tear their clothing. Well, a couple hundred years before this, we read in the book of Joel, even now declares the Lord, return to me with your old heart, with your whole heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend or tear your heart and not your garments. I'm not interested in your tearing your garments. 
I want you to have a broken heart for what you have done. I want your heart to be torn by your disobedience to me, by the way that you have rejected me, by the way you have run from me, by the way you have treated me. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he, relent, he relents from sending calamity. Now, I, I was thinking a lot about this, and I often will pray what we call the Acts prayer, A, adoration, C, confession, T, thanksgiving, S, supplication. And so I, I will go through that in my mind as I'm praying and, and in confession, oh, I confess this, I confess that, I confess this, and then I go on to something new. And I don't take seriously what my sin represents. Friends, here's what sin represents. Sin represents rebellion against God. Sin represents rejection of God. In the book of Hosea, and I want, he was on my original list for this series, but we had to shorten it a little bit. But in the, in, in the book of Hosea, God sees our sin as spiritual adultery. Loving, loving something other than God more than we love God in order to follow that sinful practice or whatever it is that we did. I'm um, meeting every week with a, with a pastor that I have great respect for. He's in our denomination. He's in our tribe. And this, this pastor has developed this amazing uh, curriculum uh, for discipleship. And right now, and what we're doing is we are bringing this to Crosspoint. But it's going to take a while couple of years for it to filter into the whole church because it's one-on-one -on -one discipleship. He's discipling me right now. I'm discipling Pastor Lon, Pastor Danny, and Beth, and then they're going to be discipling people. But it begins by looking at the reality of our sin. You ready for this? It's like 12 weeks on sin. But it's so deep in my awareness of the ugliness of my sin and the impact on the heart of God. Don't tear your clothing, tear your heart. Don't come on a, well, come <laughs> on a, on a morning we're receiving communion, but don't come with a heart that's just not even thinking about it. Come with a heart that is serious because the price for your sin was the life and the suffering of Jesus. It's serious. We read on, the third thing I want you to see is resist the temptation of following the path of least resistance. I love this. I, about two years ago, I read a book called Take the Steps. And here's the premise of the book. As human beings, we always try to follow the path of least resistance. We always try to take the easiest path, the path that will cost us the least. But often those very paths that look so promising, that look so wonderful, are the very paths that lead us astray. It's the paths that 
look like there's resistance and challenge and conflict are the very paths that God wants us to walk. But we don't choose those paths because our natural inclination is to choose the path that's easiest for us. So the premise is, don't take the elevator, don't take the escalator, take the stairs. And, and so I sat at an airport one time when we were gonna be flying somewhere, and you know how they, they have an escalator, and usually the steps, there's like 20 steps maybe. And people are jamming themselves onto the escalator because they don't wanna walk up the steps or walk down the steps. Try it sometime, just watch how few people take the steps. That's our human nature. For Esther, what did it mean? It meant the path of least resistance was to stick her head in the sand and ignore the whole thing. Have you ever done that? The path of least resistance was to act like, oh, there's nothing going on, there's no big problem here, I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna do anything. That's not what she does. I will go to the king even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I will perish. She goes to the king, and she reveals the heart of Haman, and the king deals with Haman, and the Jews are spared. Friends, you've heard it said often, and I, I, oh my gosh, I can't even remember. I wish I had written it down, but I just thought of it. But for bad things to happen in the world takes good people to look the other way. Who knows but that God has called you for such a moment as this, to stand up against injustice, to stand up for those in our world like the unborn who have no voice, to go to countries where there is such tremendous need and to go and to be a representative of Jesus in that very place. To tell people of the life that Jesus offers us through faith in him and eternity with him. Who knows but that God has called you for such a time as this. But friends, here's the reality. When you say yes to God for that, it it is often taking the path of resistance. I remember as a child growing up, um, I didn't grow up in in a Christian family, in a Christian home, but I came to Christ as a teenager, and a year later I went to a Billy Graham crusade with uh, about 500 other students who were selected to come to this conference for students at the same time Billy Graham was doing his crusade in San Diego. And Billy Graham came and spoke to us at one of our sessions. I'll never forget what he said. He said, you will see a time in your life when being a Christian in America is going to cost you. Well, I'm thinking, that's never going to happen. Everybody loves Jesus. We are living in that today. Now, we're not being physically persecuted but we are being rejected and we are being pushed aside. But the voice of God must be heard and you and I are the voice for God for such a time as this. Here's the last thing that I want you to see. Remember, 
that you are a member of God's family. So ask them to stand with you. Ask them to stand with you. Listen to what happens. Esther then responds to Mordecai, and she says, go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. In the Old Testament and in the Bible, actually, when we talk about fasting, it's always accompanied by prayer. That's just a given. They would not think that you would read this passage without thinking that they're praying. They're fasting and praying for Esther. As she, in three days, will go before the king. Fast and pray for me. Fast and pray for me. Friends, how often, how often do you go to people and say, fast and pray for me as I go to share the gospel with so-and-so. Fast and pray, pray for me as I go to stand before a school board. Pray and fast for me as I stand for and share the perspective of God for, for justice, for the, for the unborn, for those who are incarcerated, standing for what is right in this world as we reflect in such a time as this the values of God. You have purpose, you have a voice, you have been put by God in various circumstances so that we together can stand for Jesus Christ, for who he is, for what he stands for, for what he has called us to do and to say. But it can't be one of you, it can't be two of you, it must be all of us. So what are the circumstances that God has brought into our life to prepare us for such a time as this? That we will serve our generation together. Here in the greater Chino area, we will serve the Lord together in our generation. And then we'll die. And I'll end with that uplifting thought. Will you pray with me? Our Father, thank you for Esther's story. Thank you for all that she has taught us by her courage, by her willingness to stand, to take a stand. God, we confess that often we're the people who put our heads in the sand. We just don't want to get involved. We don't want to do anything. We don't want to say anything. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be criticized. We don't want to be, uh, have people try to silence us. We don't want to be canceled. And so we just stand away and we're silent. God, help us to see the circumstances of our lives. What are you saying to us through your providence? What are you calling us to do and to be? May we be courageous. May we be obedient. May we be ambassadors for Jesus in this generation, in this place. For the sake of the kingdom of God, we pray. Amen.